Good morning, Redemption Tucson. Good morning to all three of you. Thank you for that. Uh, like Dave said, my name is Stephen Collins. I am a pastoral resident here in Tucson. It is a privilege and a pleasure to get to preach this morning. I know it's not a right, but it's a, it's a privilege. Uh, as well, uh, just a couple things about me. I am married. My wife, Kelsey, and I have been married for about two and a half years. We have a little dog, no kids yet. And uh, one thing about myself, uh, I actually love this weather that's going on right now. Uh, I don't know if I can get an amen for that, but uh, some people there. Yeah, I, my family originally is from Seattle, so today's a good day for me on a lot of reasons. See, Arizona has welcomed my Seahawks to the state. So uh, I'm a big, big Seattle Seahawks fan. Dave joked with me, I have a quota on how many Seahawks references I can have, and I want to burn through them all here at the first go. So uh, let's jump in here. Uh, Amen to that. And uh, one thing here, guys, I'm so glad we stand when we read God's Word. I'm not going to ask you to do it again right now, but I am asking if you do not have a Bible, we want to get one into your hands. So if uh, I could get some people to come up here um, to hand out these Bibles, if you do not have one, Please raise your hand. We want to equip you with God's word. If you have a Bible and you just forgot yours, don't steal our Bibles. I'm looking at you. I'm taking note on who's raising their hands. Um, no, I'm just kidding. But uh, we want to equip you with God's word. We say that all of life is all for Jesus and all of life comes under the authority of God's word. And so we're in the last week of our Restored People series. Uh, we've been going through it for the last four weeks. This is week five for us now. And uh, this series builds itself on the presupposition that things are not the way they ought to be. This series builds itself on the presupposition that things are not the way they ought to be. We need restoration because something is, in fact, broken. We need restoration because something is broken. We are broken people that need to be restored people. Our city, our home, and our church all need to be restored by the gospel of Christ. And so where we've been these last three weeks, we've, we've talked about restored people in the city, in the home, and in the church. And we talked about restored people in the city, and Wayne Winter came down from Redemption Alhambra and did an incredible job leading us through seeing the brokenness in the city and how the gospel does not allow us to check out, but calls us to press in. That we are to build the kingdom of God. And as it comes and as it unfolds, so does justice, love, compassion, and peace flow. We talked about the home and how relationships are broken and marriages are in disarray. There are crippling expectations as parents, families are estranged. Some of the deepest pain we will feel in this life or experience on this earth will come from people who we share a roof with, who we share a last name with. Things are not the way they ought to be. And last week, even in the church, we find incredible brokenness. For some of us, the church might have been the least safe place in the world growing up. I know some of our stories in the church was not a place of a harbor of safety, but a place of danger. And I pray that this morning there would be healing. And I pray that there would be healing for you in this place here at Redemption Tucson. Things are not the way they ought to be. Some of us have been hurt by the church, but also many of us come to the church with the wrong posture. We come like a buffet line trying to pick out the things that we want. We say even silly things. Uh, I think even maybe with good intention, we say we're church shopping as if like a pair of jeans, which one is going to fit us best. Um, I, man, things are not the way they ought to be as if the church existed to meet our needs and I think our indicator of where God might be calling us to be in a local church should not 
be comfort, but more likely it should be discomfort because bringing all of life under the authority of Scripture and through the lens of the gospel will be uncomfortable and will be difficult, will be challenging, and will in fact be costly. When we come here this morning, we say we are collectively coming to become uncomfortable. So if you're uncomfortable, you're not in probably a good place right now because it means the Holy Spirit is doing a work in your life. That's the past month. So where are we going today? Today, we're talking about the victorious church, which is only even one point of what I'm talking about today. But we're looking at the reality that God's chosen means practically on the ground for restoration in our city, in our homes, and in our lives, and in our church is in fact the church. God's means for restoration, one could even say ironically or paradoxically, is the church. God gives his church as his chosen means for restoration. And I just want to say, just before we jump in here, for the sake of definitions, when I say the church, like scripture does, I am both referring to the larger universal people of God, the church, all times, all peoples, all places, as well as individual local congregations like Redemption Tucson, the church. So I'm talking about when I say the church, the church globally as well as locally, the church scattered as well as gathered like today, the church collectively and individually like you, me, and us. So where we're going, if you're taking notes, I have three points. We're just going to go through them here. Number one, the church is a beacon of hope to a broken world. The church is a beacon of hope to a broken world. Two, the church is tragically unfaithful and yet recklessly loved. And three, the one I'm excited to get to, the church is victorious. So let me pray, and then we'll get to it. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you uh, that you love your church, that you have a mission, and your church gets to be a part of it, that you have a people that you have adopted in, that you have ransomed from every tribe, tongue, nation, color, background, and story. You are good to us. We have not been good to you. Thank you for your grace. I pray that you would shape us, that you would even shape me as we hear your word. I thank you that your word does not return void, but like a two-edged sword, it pierces the soul, it pierces the heart, and it does the surgical work to make us new. I love you, Jesus, because you loved me first. So I pray this in your name. Amen. Let's get to it, guys. Number one, the church is a beacon of hope to a broken world. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. It'll be up here on the screen as well. You can read with me. Matthew 5, the church is a beacon of hope to a broken world. Verse 13, you are the salt. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. You, disciples, are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So, Jesus tells his disciples that they are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. His disciples, the people of God, one could say the church, are to be salt and light in the world. We're going to go through these, salt and light, starting with salt. Salt has many benefits in relation to food, especially in uh, Jesus' first century context. Uh, I work also part-time in the food industry uh, at a restaurant here downtown, and I tell you, salt makes things that wouldn't normally taste good actually taste acceptable. Um, I think we could say something like 
kale. Uh, you can add some salt to that. You can add something. Uh, some of you granola folk are really offended right now, and I do not apologize. And uh, <laughs> salt makes things taste good. I mean, salt makes things taste good. Um, if you don't think salt tastes good, you are lying to yourself and you need to repent. And uh, we, as the church, are to be the salt of the earth. What does salt do? Salt gives flavor to food. It enhances food. We are to be the salt of the earth. We are to enhance our world. We are to benefit our world. We are to seek the common good of our city. We are to benefit and bless our neighborhoods. The church should be first to volunteer at our public schools. The church should be first to volunteer, to see park cleanups and urban restoration, see the church at systemic scales down the street at City Hall, as well as at local levels in our neighborhoods, should seek to be salt, to influence the world for good, and to enhance and benefit those around us. Would it be salt? Salt enhances, but salt also preserves. Um, we live in Arizona. Uh, there wasn't always refrigerators or freezers. There wasn't always ice. Um, so how would they preserve food? Salt would have been uh, a way for some context. And salt would keep food from spoiling. So one clear application, if we are to be salt and salt preserves, is that of creation care and environmental stewardship. Salt prever- preserves, and the people of God should care most for God's world, not just 19-year-old sustainability students at the University of Arizona. We should care the most about stewarding our environment and caring for creation. And the question is why? Just three quick points here. One, the world is God's property, so we should respect his property. The world is God's property, and we should care for it. We should preserve it. We should steward it well. Two, creation displays the glory of God, and I want people to see clearly the glory of God through creation. I want people to experience that without it being marred. And three, the sum of the law, Jesus tells us, is to love your neighbor as yourself. And last time I checked, your neighbor lives on planet Earth, so we should take care of his home. We as the church are to live as the salt of the earth. We are to preserve and we are to enhance and as we look at this passage again, I'm not trying to be dramatic, but I am trying to be biblical. If we do not live like this, we are useless. Verse 13. If salt has lost its taste, keep going there, it is no longer good for anything. If we do not live lives, both individually and collectively, the church, that seek to bless others, we are not living the life that God has intended for us. We are not living out our identity as the church, nor are we functioning as salt in the world, and we are ultimately selling ourselves short on what God intends for us. Chiefly, joy is what we're selling ourselves short on. We are to be salt, and we are also to be light. Verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Verse 16. Let your light shine before others. The church locally and globally is to be a beacon of hope. A beacon of hope to our broken world. The people of God are a beacon of hope because they are in fact in the world. Because they are in the world. We are called to have a public faith both individually as well as corporately. Tyler Johnson, he's come here before, he's the pastor over all of Redemption Church. He said this, and I found it to be pretty compelling. He pointed out once, quote, Out of the 132 appearances of Jesus that are in a non-private setting, that is, not in a home, 122 of them are in the marketplace. Also, there are 40 divine acts 
for miracles in the book of Acts, 39 of those 40 are done in the marketplace or in the public commons. An exclusively private faith is not an option for biblical Christians. It is not an option for the church, both individually and corporately. To be like Jesus is to have a public faith. To be like Jesus is to have a public faith. And this is why as a church we talk about vocation and engaging culture and building culture. And we talk about all of life being all for Jesus. We talk about faith and work integration because we believe that there is not a square inch in the history of the universe or a square inch in our universe in which Christ does not declare mine, as Abraham Kuyper once said. He is sovereign and Lord over all things. Therefore, we talk about how the gospel impacts, affects, and shapes all things. So let your light shine before others. But I think there's a foundational question, and that question is why? Why should we let our light shine before others? All of this so that God would be glorified. All of this is so that God would be glorified. Verse 16, that they would see your good works, because you're in the public, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. All of this is for God's glory, that God would be exalted, that God would be made much of, that we would be living in such a way, church, that we would be living in such a way that is so gospel-saturated, that is so jesus Saturated, that is so attractive, so enhancing of good, that is so eradicating of wrong, that is such a profound building of the kingdom of God, that is such a blessing of others, both the church, you, me, individually, corporately, that, the, that our city would have to do something with this Jesus, that our schools would have to do something with this Jesus, that our neighborhoods would have to do something with this Jesus. God being made much of, Jesus being exalted in all of life is what our city needs, is what our home needs, is what our church needs. And in the church and through the church, Redemption Tucson, people should see God clearly. They should see God clearly. They should know what Jesus is like, what he is passionate for, what he loves. They should see that from the manner in which we live, the content in which we speak, and the hope in which we have. The church is a beacon of hope to the city. I want to be really practical here. I want to localize this and talk practically. What does this mean for Redemption Tucson? Because we deeply care about our city and seeing the church armed with the gospel and seeing changed lives and restoration in Tucson. We see restoration in our city. And I confess to you, this would be a much easier point if we were in Phoenix. We just look around and say, we need to see some urban renewal in this desolate, barren wasteland. I mean, the fact even the, this university called the Sun Devils, we need to pray for our cities. We need to see the kingdom of God come forward on the heathens up north. Sun Devils, and you just made your sign it up on a T for me. I mean, Sun Devils, come on. And it can be hard here in Tucson, I think, in light, of tu in, in light of Phoenix here. You know, Phoenix, we just say, look to Tucson, and you'll see what a beautiful urban landscape can look like. You can see this beautiful Sonoran oasis where burritos and horchata flow, <laughs> where really a city set on a hill, if you will. I mean, the fact that even our roads have characters, we see the creativity of God as they rise and as they dip at unexpected places. <laughs> Phoenix, you don't have this. Even, even our downtown, I think that actually city planners 
planned this as the Trinity three in one. Our downtown has three buildings that make one beautiful skyline. I think they were just trying to display the beauty, creativity, and splendor and worth of God. In our, so every time you look out on our beautiful skyline, you can think, man, look at God. Look at God. It's good. Phoenix, catch up. Looking at you. But seriously, really practically, really practically, we want to see restoration in Tucson. That's why we're meeting in a public school in downtown Tucson. Meeting in downtown Tucson right now in a public school. And we partner with Safford here because we want to see urban room. We want to love our neighbors. We want to come alongside public schools. We do school day cleanups. We're working towards mentoring and, and, and coming alongside some of these students and tutoring them because we want to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's why we march on MLK Day and we go and see Selma as a church because all people are made in the image of God and therefore all people have dignity, value, work, and purpose. And yet there is systemic sin. Yet there is incredible injustice and racism still in our country, city, neighborhoods, and even churches today. Dr. King said the most segregated hour is Sunday morning. We're not okay with that. The gospel says we must engage. We must engage. We do foster care and adoption initiatives. We even during Advent season had a benevolent offering because we are to care for the least of these, for the widow and for the orphan. We all were orphans that were adopted into the family of God. The gospel compels us. It tells us we were orphans, but Jesus, through his substitutionary death on the cross, brought us into the family of God. He bought us into the family of God. We are all adopted children, so we must care for the orphan because we all at one point were in an impoverished state, if not for Jesus. So we must care. We must engage. The church is a beacon of hope to a broken world through the city as well as in the home. Practically, that's why we have redemption communities, RCs, and they meet in homes. They meet in homes. We really value our kids' ministry. Put a lot of energy, effort into that. And kids get to hear about Jesus from their diapers. I think that's awesome. Some of us pray that would have been our story, that we could have heard Jesus, not instead when we were decades later, but we could have heard him as a child. I praise God for that. That's the next generation is going to be raised up hearing about Jesus, hearing about his gospel, and hearing how much he loves them and showing them through his death on the cross. I think it's amazing. God calls us, church, to be in community with one another. And my plea for you is get in an RC. I'm going to just unashamedly say, if you're not in a redemption community, get in one. And yet again, an individualized, privatized Christianity is unknown to the Bible. Our proclivity, our tendency is towards isolation, even extroverts like myself. Our tendency is going to be towards isolation, so we must fight upstream with intentionality towards community. Because if we don't, we will drift into isolation. We will not stumble ourselves into community. We must fight towards it. One author says, I believe it was Tim Chester, he said, sin is like mold. It grows best in the dark. The call to community is a call to be known. It's a call to be shaped. It's a call to bring all of life into the light. It's a call to bring all of life under the authority of Scripture and through the lens of the gospel. Tucson needs gospel-saturated homes that are being built up and sent out from gospel-saturated churches and are being commissioned to their mission field, the neighborhood, the workplace, the city. And our kids, they need godly men who will lead their homes with love, who are, as one pastor said, that men that would be tender as well as tough. 
all of this in the city, the home, etc. The role, the privilege is on the church to be a beacon of hope to our broken city. So that's point one. The church is a beacon of hope to a broken world. And two, the church is tragically unfaithful and yet recklessly loved. I promise that was the longest point. The next two will go quicker or else we'll be here till kickoff and I will not let that happen. And so read with me Ephesians 5. That's where we're going next. Two, the church is tragically unfaithful and yet recklessly loved. Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 27, 31 through 32. Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Read that again, just because I like it. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Verse 31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. Both individually, you and I, collectively as the church, she is loved, she is cherished, she is protected, and she is valued. You can't love Jesus and hate the church. We talked about this last week. Uh, Dave expounded that. You can't say, Stephen, I like you. You know, you're a little taller than Dave, but you're short enough that you make me feel tall. Um, you can't say that as well as, and say, you know, I like you. You know, you're a wildcat like us, even though you went to a different school. And, uh, you know, I like you, but I don't like Kelsey at all. She's the worst. She went to that, that school, USC, the University of Spoiled Children, and their football team just tends to beat us again and again and again. The truth shall set you free. And I just don't like it. You can't say that. I would say we can't be friends. That just isn't happening. See, you can't love Jesus and hate his bride. You can't love Jesus and hate this church. You can't love Jesus and hate what he came to die for. You can't hate what he loves. But his bride is tragically unfaithful. She's a mess and she strays after other lovers. We do this collectively and individually, you and I. We look to relationships for our identity. We look to our savings account for our security. We look to our GPA for our validation. Our kids for our affirmation. We look to our job for our worth. And our trinkets for our joy. And yet we look to another for what we could have in full in Christ. We look to another for what we could have full in Christ. In Jesus you have a sure identity. In Christ you have a true security, a lasting affirmation, true validation, incredible worth, and in fact true perfect lasting joy. And we tragically and treasonously say in our deeds, we say in our intentions, and we say in all of life that Jesus you are not enough. We say you do not truly satisfy And yet, Jesus is faithful. We long, you and I, for what will kill us. We long for sin. We look to another for what we have perfectly in Jesus. And he tenderly yet persistently carries us along. He carries his church along and he will bring to completion that which he started Jesus died for his church that she might live, and he will not leave his church 
banged up and bruised and messy. She, he will fend for the church. He loves her too much. He loves us too much. Look at verse 25. I read it. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, having cleansed her, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, that she might be holy and without blemish. His church is unfaithful, but Jesus is faithful still. Jesus is faithful still. His bride is loved beyond comprehension and is pure, despite her unfaithfulness. You in Christ are pure despite your unfaithfulness. This is us, church, individually and collectively. You and I, our guilt is great. Our sin is paramount. It is mounting. We have sinned and been sinned against. We are not worthy. We are not pure. We are not faithful. We do not honor Christ as we ought. We as the church look more bitter than loving. We look more annoyed with the world than broken over it much of the time, in fact. We were dead in our sin, but God. Some of the best words we'll ever hear, but God. He intervened. He entered the story. And this Jesus, he died on the cross in our place for our sin. And he rose again. This reality changes everything. God did not just sit on his throne and said, figure it out. He reaches down into our dark world and says, I will rid this world of darkness. This changes everything. And this is why for millennia before us and week after week to come, we as the church, we take communion. We come to this table and we remember that we are unfaithful and Jesus is faithful and was faithful and will be faithful. That we deserve our bodies to be broken and our blood to be spilt for our sin. But Jesus was punished in our place. We come to this table to remember this. This is not a dead ritual. This is something that we use to remind ourselves of the story of God. And we will preach about this message over and over again. And we will sing about this message over and over again. And we will talk about it because we are captivated by the story. And we will keep singing, keep preaching, keep talking about this message because it is amazing. This news, this grace, this Jesus. We cannot become callous to this story. This gospel of grace, God himself radically, recklessly pursuing the church. It changes the lens in which we view the world and without which we view the church. It tells you you are loved. It tells us we are loved collectively. You are loved individually. It tells us that God is committed to the church. It tells us that God is committed to his church. It also tells us that all of life truly is all for Jesus. God created you. You are his he not only created you, but he brought you into the family of God. He bought you, he ransomed you, he redeemed you. You are his. I am his. We are his. We've been redeemed by God for God. To turn back to our old lovers in light of this love would be insanity. But yet, we do it. And we will never do this perfectly until we are made new where we can continue to grow in obedience and holiness to Jesus. And the good news is God gives us a new heart, new desires. We are made new in Christ so that we might be faithful to Jesus. So one, the church is a beacon of hope to a broken world. Two, the church is tragically unfaithful and yet recklessly loved. And three, the church is victorious. Uh, read with me. What Andrea read earlier, Matthew 16, verses 13 through 18. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? 
And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I just need to make one thing clear before we jump into this uh, passage. And we'll talk about this more in our response later on. But how we become part of the collective church, how we become a part of the people of God, the only way to enter this is to be forgiven and adopted through the family of God is through surrender to Jesus as Lord. It is through faith in Jesus Christ, faith in Him as Savior, who alone can save us from our sin. It is surrender and faith to Jesus. We have become adopted children of God rather than enemies to God only through surrender of all of life completely to Jesus. You have to know Jesus rightly as well as surrender to Him fully. But we will not do this perfectly. There is grace. If you have not done this, we want this for you. And if you have done this, we want to help equip you to do this and live this out in all of life. Verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. It tells us something incredibly important. It tells us something incredibly important. It tells us that we win. It tells us that we win. It tells us that the church is ultimately victorious. At the end of time, we know how the story of God ends. We read in Revelation, the final book of the Bible, that Satan, demons, sin, and death will all be defeated. And God and the church will be victorious. Jesus wins. The church wins. We win. This is good news. Amen? For some of you, win, lose. I guess it doesn't matter. No. Uh, we win. This is good news. Jesus will build his church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell shall not prevail against Jesus Christ and his church. I get excited about that. I don't know if you can tell. I get excited about this. And I think rightly we should collectively get excited about this, but I think too many of us have the wrong picture of what Jesus is talking about here, what is going on here. I did, for most of my life, have a totally wrong picture of what is happening here. Too many of us think that what Jesus is saying is, buckle down, endure the world, because punch is coming, the wave is coming, storms are coming, and just hang on, and you'll get through it. And no matter what's thrown at you, you will survive. You'll make it. As if like in a boxer in a ring, Satan's just going to punch after punch after punch and hopefully his arm gets tired because you just got to take it over and over again. Hopefully you endure it. And maybe Jesus will kind of tap in and, you know, in this thing. But until then, just hang on like Rocky Balboa, just face is a mess. Hopefully Jesus will step in at one point. Well, that's not what it says. That's not the story. What does it say? It says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Now, I've seen a lot of movies 
um, over the years that are war movies. I was a cinema studies minor because I take school very seriously. And uh, I've seen a lot of war movies. And I've seen World War I, World War II. Just watched a World War II movie yesterday. I've seen a lot of movies on Civil War, Vietnam War, American Revolution, Roman Wars, Greek Wars, English Wars, seen Feudal Wars, seen Star Wars. Um, just making sure you're paying attention here. And uh, keeping on your toes. And I, I can keep going. I, I do enjoy a good war film. Some of you do as well. And all those films are something I've never seen before. I've seen a lot of things happen on that. I picture like Braveheart, you know, blue faces. They're lined up, taking on the English. Freedom. Here we go. And, you know, you see swords. You see axes, you see bows, or in you know, modern warfare, you see, you see guns, you see tanks, you see all these things, but I've never seen rolling up to the battle line, here's my sword, here's my axe, picturing you know, like Lord of the Rings, here's my bow, here's my gate. <clears throat> like, the gates are here. Thank goodness. Take the gates. Here we go, like, marching to the battlefield. Like, Satan's like, who grabbed the gates? Get, we gotta have gates here. How are we going to get this thing going? It's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous picture. I think it's a funny picture. And because gates are defensive. They're essential for a fortress's security and safety. The true picture of what is going on here, the true picture is that the church will come upon the kingdom of Satan over and over again and again. And wave after wave, the church will break forth, will destroy this false kingdom. Jesus is saying that the gates of hell will not hold the church back. The church is on the offensive. The gates of hell cannot, will not hold the church back. Jesus wins. The church wins. His kingdom will be leveled, will be decimated, will be destroyed by Jesus, his church, his kingdom. And that is good news. Amen? Amen. That was the response I was looking for. When we know how the story ends, it changes the way we view the present. When we know how the story ends, it changes the way we view the present, how we view the now. See, we don't care the score after the first quarter. We don't care the score at halftime or in the third quarter. When we know what the score is at the end, we do not care how it gets there. We know how it ends. We know Jesus wins. We know the church wins. We know we are victorious. That should change the way we view now. And this whole point that I'm talking about was really influenced by a couple pastors, Matt Chandler and Larry Osborne, and they had some things to say. And one of those guys used an analogy. He used a famous college football game to illustrate this. But I've been saving my Seahawk references till now, so I'm going to use them all up right here. So when we know the end of the story, it changes the way we view the present. So two weeks ago, there was this little football game that Seattle played the Green Bay Packers in. And uh, it was awful. It was absolutely awful. The winner gets to go to the Super Bowl. There was not one, not two, not three, not four, but five turnovers Seattle had. It was awful. I remember sitting here. I had my jersey on. I had my hat on, ready to go. My wife had her Seahawks gear on. Our dog had a jersey on. We love the Seahawks. And uh, we're watching this game. It's just awful. It's just the worst. I couldn't have got the worst start. At one point, I actually took my hat, and I threw it into the dining room because the Seahawks are not an idol to me at all. And... Uh, and I remember, I had to like leave the room. I can't believe what I'm seeing. I, the game's over. They're going to lose. Late into the game. Actually, we had people even over, so they got to see me throw a temper tantrum. And uh, these people, they even just left. They're like, we're turning this game on, whatever. Like, they turned, they just left because it's like, this game's over. We're out of here. Or they just didn't want to be around me. And uh, so we had that going on. And then all of a sudden, Seattle starts coming back. Starts coming back. And they actually performed the greatest comeback in the history of 
the round of championship games. Came back, we're going to the Super Bowl, baby. Beautiful. We see the kingdom of God unfolding. <laughs> see the kingdom of God unfolding. And uh, I couldn't believe it. And I went back and I watched these games again and again. Probably too many times. And I watched interception after interception, bad play after bad play. And you know, I, I didn't throw my hat. I didn't get angry. I, didn't, I wasn't anxious as they were coming back. Every pick, I was like, why don't you throw another one, Russ? Why don't you throw another one? Just make the victory that much sweeter. Keep it coming back. And then after like, the Packers scored touchdowns, there's all those cheesehead fans are all like doing their like, ooh-rah thing. And players are high-fiving each other. All the Packers fans are smiling. I'm thinking, just smile. How about you do another high-five? Just come on. Keep smiling. Keep waving those stupid cheeseheads. Keep doing your thing. And because it's coming. Just you wait. I don't care how much they celebrate, how much they are dancing, how much they just look ridiculous. Because I knew we were going to win. I knew we were going to win. Once I knew the outcome, everything changed. Everything changes when you know the victory is imminent. When you know it is sure. When we know we win. When we know the outcome, it changes the way that we view trials. This is the worst it's going to get. If you are in Christ, this is the worst it will ever be. We fight a defeated foe. He loses. We win. The church wins. Stop living like we lose. Stop living a life that tells a false story of defeat, but in fact tells a true story of victory. This has to change the way in which we view trials, the way we view the present. And yes, we look around and we see things are out of control. So often the world is broken and there's injustice reigning. We see sorrow and we see pain. These are all realities. Our lives are hard. The curse is in effect. Life can seem to be spiraling out of control. But God is in control. Do you believe that? Do you believe victory is coming? Do you believe you fight the defeated foe? This is a faith issue. You might be thinking, Stephen, you don't know my life. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know what's happening to me. You're right, I don't. But my comfort to you is this in closing. I want you to look at me. If ever God looked like he was out of control, it was when Jesus was on the cross. If ever God looked like he was out of control, what is happening? It's when Jesus is dead in the tomb for two days. What is going on? God, are you in control? And he says, wait. Easter's coming. Sunday's coming. He will rise. And if God can turn the greatest injustice in the history of the world into our salvation and can turn the greatest tragedy, the greatest injustice in the history of the world, in his son's death can result in it into our life. If he can redeem that injustice, he can redeem your every tear. He can restore your every trial. He can redeem your every single storm and pain in this life. For his glory, our joy, and others' good. None of your tears are wasted. None of your trials are in vain. And none of your pain is just lost. Jesus can redeem. Our hope is look to the cross. And my charge for us, church, individually and collectively, is that we live out of that story. That we live out of that 
true identity, for it is the only story that matters. It is the only story that is worth living for, and it is the only story that is, in fact, true. Amen? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are victorious. We get to serve a God who wins. We get to be a part of a church that wins. We get to be a part of your work. That doesn't mean life's just going to be easy. doesn't mean life is just going to be painless. But it means that you will restore and redeem all things. It means that you are working. It means you use us in spite of us. And it means that Jesus, you will redeem as far as the curse is found. We look forward to that day where our faith will be made sight. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for adopting us into the family of God. Thank you for making it possible that we might live because you died. Lord, help us collectively to respond to this in surrender, that as we sing this next song of surrender, that we would truly hold all of life openly to you. We love you, Jesus. We respond to you, Jesus. All that we have is a gift, so we are blessed to be a blessing. Let us do that, Lord. We love you, victorious King Jesus. Amen.